0: Well, good morning, friends, Uh, as always. Great to be with you guys this morning. Thanks for joining us this morning. If it's your first time, first time in a long time, know that you are our special guest. Uh, You are honored and welcome in this house. We're glad that you're joining us today. There's a great spirit in here this morning. I can't tell if it's, it's the choir being back with us. Great to have you guys up there. Can't tell if it's the Bronco jerseys again that are out in the audience. I mean, maybe it's a combination of the two, you know? Something powerful about a... Choir wearing Bronco jersey, you know, something like that. So glad you're here today, though. We are uh, in the middle of a sermon series entitled The Story. Last week, we actually picked up kind of the second part of that. So you're joining us this morning on a great, on a great Sunday. We're in chapter 23, but it's only the second week that we've been in the New Testament. What we're doing is we're using this resource, and it's, it's helping us to put together the major narratives throughout the entire scripture in chronological order to show us how every person in the Bible, as well as every person in this room, plays an important part in the most important story of all time. It's a story of God. It's a story about love, a story about loss, and ultimately a story about eternal life. And the Bible walks us through from page one to the very last page, and those pages are designed to help you make sense of your pages, uh, the pages that you are in on this story. So glad we're doing that. We've got a lot to talk about this morning. I am going to jump right into it. Nathan and I have spent a lot of time thinking and praying about this message, and I'm excited to, uh, to, to share these thoughts. with you. Let me pray. God, we learn that uh, the word... Your word, the Bible, is active. It's living and active. And so we just pray that it will be what it is this morning in this room, that it will be active, that it will move and change and speak to, convict and transform people. We pray the same for marriages and families and businesses. We want your word, God, to lead and guide and illuminate and bring us life. We ask that it will do that now in Jesus' name. Amen. For, for a long time, uh, sequels were all the rage in literature and in Hollywood, weren't they? Right? Readers and viewers didn't just want to learn what happened. They wanted to learn what happened next. So authors and directors, well, they cashed in on this whole dynamic, and they extended storylines, and they expanded narratives, and that's how we get the sequel. Sometimes those sequels just flat-out stink, don't they? And, like the original wasn't that good, so a second and a third, please, please. Fast and the Furious. I mean, come on, how many Fast and Furious movies do you really need? Number one was okay, but number seven? And although I loved Land Before Time, the original, I think the 37th installment just came out of those little dinosaurs. They never grow up, they never go extinct. It's like, what? Enough already. But recently, Hollywood started to focus not so much on the sequel, but on something called the prequel. Instead of telling us what happens next, the prequel tells us what happened first. So through a prequel, we get a little extra insight into why things are the way they are and where they all came from, right? We have The Hobbit, which gives us insight, and the background story in The Lord of the Rings. We have Star Wars, episodes one, two, and three. And then we have Wicked, which is the prequel to what? Wizard of Oz. All right, these are all backstories. And all of the, the great stories that we originally loved, they actually have a backstory That tells us a lot about and and makes more sense of the original story, gives us more context and more meat, more things to think about as it pertains to the rest of the story. And actually, that very same thing is true for the Bible. See, in Genesis 1-1, we read these words, in the beginning, but that actually wasn't the very beginning. Something actually happened before that moment. The beginning pages and the beginning words of the Bible are in all actuality act two of this unfolding drama and the unfolding storyline of God. Before the Lord created the cosmos, before he set the earth on its axis, before Adam and Eve entered the scene, something else happened. There's a prequel to this movie. There's a prequel to this story and it gives a lot of information about why the rest of the story is the way that it is. Now, if you're anything like me, you start to read the book of Genesis and everything's fine and dandy. You're enjoying the relationship that man has with God, that man has with other people, that man has with creation. It's it's this paradise setting, and then all of a sudden, this serpent shows up. You're like, who invited this guy to the party, right? Talk about Debbie Downer. It's like Debbie Destroyer right here. Like, what what is going on? Where did he come from? Who is this character? And why is he trying to mess up the garden? Well, that's where the prequel to the story will come in handy. That's where knowing the backstory will help. And I'm kind of bummed that the title Wicked has already been taken because the prequel to the Bible should be called Wicked. That's exactly how it plays out. Now, we don't have time to dive into all this, but I want to give you a quick summary as to what we learned from the books of Ezekiel, Job, Isaiah, and Revelation. All right, so hang on to your seats here for a second. Before God created the world, we learned that he created angelic beings. The Bible describes them as the heavenly hosts. These beings served and worshiped the Lord, and it appears that they were organized in some hierarchical structure, with archangels being at the very top of the food chain, the top of the org chart, if you will. Well, there was one archangel in particular, one of the three that had been created. He served as guardian and commander of all the rest. This angelic being was known as Lucifer or Satan. He was unequaled in his beauty, and in his power, but he was not satisfied with serving the Lord. He wanted the attention and the praise and the worship for himself. So in his pride and in his arrogance, in his selfishness, he ended up falling out of God's service. But more than that, he fell out of God's good graces. More than that, he fell out of God's very presence. And as he fell, as he left, As he he turned away from God, he ended up taking a third of those angelic beings with him. But here's the thing. Satan and and that third of the angels, those followers, they didn't just walk away from God. They actually came together to wage war against God. Now, I know what you're probably thinking at this point. Like, oh, great. Thomas, you're not one of those guys, are you? Like, you're getting a little weird on us now. End time, spiritual warfare, evil spirits, woo! Yeah, I am one of those guys. Sorry, deal with it. But think about it. Think about it. Why are war movies so popular in our world? Why are we so drawn to battles and fight scenes? Why does every great story have to have a villain? Why is that? Well, that's because that's what's happening on a cosmic level. See, the cosmic story is filled and based off of good fighting against evil. The cosmic story opens and looks like, in all actuality, the opening scenes of Saving Private Ryan or or Gladiator. It's this war-ravaged world. It wasn't just paradise. It wasn't just the garden. A lot was happening behind the scenes. And thus, because that's how the cosmic story plays out, that's how our story plays out. Because that's the experience of what's happening in the heavenly realms. That's our experience as well. Yet most of us are completely oblivious to the prequel. We have no idea as the context in which we've been placed. It's like, that's too kooky. That's too weird. That's just just too odd to talk about spiritual warfare, Satan. You really believe in that guy? Come on. But if I were your enemy, if I were trying to destroy you, if I were trying to take you out and rip your life away from you, don't you think I would love the fact that you think you're too smart to even believe in me? Don't you think I would absolutely love the fact that you think you're too spiritual, too mature, too accomplished to even recognize my existence? I would love that. Go ahead. Keep acting like I'm not here. Makes my job really, really easy. See, the prequel to Genesis 1-1 tells us that a cosmic battle between good and evil is raging all around us. And that's the context in which the garden is created. Now here's the thing. Satan's tactic in this battle, in this war, from the very beginning has never been to go directly after God the Father. He can't do that. that, that that'd be foolish. Like an ant trying to take me out. You're like, really? But what Satan has decided to do instead is go after God's kids. He doesn't go after the Father. He goes after the children. And we see this play itself out in movies all the time, don't we? When you can't get to the hero, what do you do? You kill the hero's family one of my favorite movies of all time, Braveheart, right? The English lords, they murder William Wallace's wife because they can't get to him again gladiator. They can't get to Maximus, so what do they do? They slaughter his family. When you can't get to the hero, you go after the hero's family. That's exactly what Satan has been doing since the beginning of time. So, Genesis 1-1, Adam and Eve. So, the garden. Oh, I see who that guy is now. I see what he's up to. I see what's going on here. It's a great battle scene in Genesis 1-1. There are no guns, no swords, but death and destruction are very present in that moment. You guys with me? All right. Now that's how the Old Testament begins, with Satan waging war against God's children, God's image bearers. Well, just as the Old Testament started, so the New Testament will start. And now the battle is going to become intensely personal, and Satan's going to go after another one of God's children. In fact, the son of God himself, Jesus. Open your Bible, Matthew chapter 4 or page 321 in your storybook. Now, in recent months, there's been a lot of hype around the world of boxing and mixed martial arts. Is there not? A lot of people are talking about what's happening in those worlds and those arenas of sport. I mean, some of the biggest fights in recent memory, uh, Mayweather Pacquiao, uh, Ronda Rousey, who's actually fighting in January, one of my high school friends, uh, Holly Holmes, super excited about that. Not super excited for Holly, but anyway. (laughs) Those fights have brought in a lot of attention, and they brought in a lot of money. Rhonda and and Mayweather combined have brought in over $300 million in one night with their fights. So it seems as if a lot of people, nobody in here, but a lot of people love to watch a good fight. We just like to see two people duking it out. That's exactly what we have here in chapter 23 of our story. The fight that Satan started against God's image bearers in the garden is now going to continue in the desert. All right now, at this point in our story, little eight-pound, six-ounce, newborn, infant baby Jesus, well, he's a 30-year-old man. And that happened quickly. Last week, we were celebrating Christmas. Now, all of a sudden, we're talking about Jesus, the 30-year-old man. Well, that happens so quickly because in the Bible, we don't hear a lot about the early childhood years of Jesus. We don't read a lot about his early adulthood seems as if he grew up and lived life just like all the other little Jewish boys of the day. He visited the temple with his family for special occasions. He studied and memorized the scriptures. He learned the family trade, which for him was carpentry. He supported his mother and his siblings financially. But then, then this happens. Here's our text for the morning. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter, devil, Satan, Lucifer, came to him and said, if you are the son of God, well then tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written in the Bible, he will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands, so you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give to you, said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. There's so much going on here. I wish we had more time. Let's just unpack a couple of things. In one of the most understated verses in all of Scripture, we learn that God led Jesus into the desert. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he went without food and water. And then it says this, he was hungry. You think? You think he was hungry? 40 days and 40 nights without any food and water? That's the understatement of all understatements there, Matthew. He was hungry. Well, that's an interesting thing that all of a sudden, after we learn what he had just been through, we learn that Satan comes to attack him. Satan comes to take him down. It's one of the first things we learn about our enemy in this text. He comes when you're tired. He comes when you're hungry. He comes when you're not paying attention. He comes when you're stressed out, when you're bored. He comes to you when you're weak because he's not interested in a fair fight. He doesn't play by the rules. He wants to destroy you. He will do whatever it takes. I some gladiator kick this morning. Sorry, but remember that scene at the end of Gladiator where Caesar finally goes against head-to-head Maximus? Well, what's the prequel to that fight in the, in the ring? He stabs him in the chest. Remember that? He stabs him before the fight even began. So we think, oh, it's an equal fight, equal playing field out there. No, it's not. Jesus was about to die, and Satan came after him with everything he had. Now, Jesus is struggling to stay awake. I think he's struggling to stay alive, and Satan comes. Now, I have to admit that these three temptations, as we read them together, they don't sound all that evil. They don't sound like a satanic presence in the world. But of course they wouldn't. I mean, Satan knows that we're probably a little too intelligent to fall for these overtly evil, uh, super destructive schemes of his. Thomas, here's a gun. Put it to your head. I, w- I wouldn't fall for that. Thomas, here's a married woman. Sleep with her so you can destroy your family, wreck your marriage, and undermine your ministry legacy. Go ahead. If that's the temptation, all of us would be like, no. So he comes in another way. He comes through the lure of lies, the lure of half truths, little statements here and there. Because he knows he can't get you just to jump off the cliff, although it's kind of what he asked you just to do. He comes in a different way. And he comes with three different little lies, three temptations. Let me unpack them quickly for you this morning. The first is this. Material things will completely satisfy you and ultimately save you. As if Satan comes to his enemy, Jesus, in this temptation, he says, Oh, oh, so you want to be like them. You want to be a human. Wonderful. Then it's all about the physical world now, Jesus. You're a physical being. You have physical needs, physical wants, physical desires. So do whatever it takes to satisfy yourself physically. Because that's all you have now. That's all that matters now. You need to eat, man. So make some food. Manipulate some food. Manufacture some physical things that you think will satisfy and save you. And aren't we tempted in the same way? I mean, aren't we all tempted, as soon as we leave this auditorium, even in it, that, that satisfaction to our souls will happen through a bunch of stuff. Our souls will be satisfied when we get a bunch of stuff. Hey, buy this, get this, taste this, look at this, try this, order this, eat this, smoke this. I mean, from our homes to our bodies, to the, to the food that we eat, to the material things that we all buy, we all have become, we've all come to believe that we will be satisfied and saved by our stuff. Now, none of those things are bad. Jesus is like speaking negative. I mean, Jesus was going to eat a lot of bread throughout the course of his life. He's not like anti-bread, He's not gluten-free, whatever it is, right? He's just... He's just saying, in this moment, your temptation, you're trying to convince me that the spiritual world doesn't exist and that the spiritual core of who I am doesn't matter. And that's not true. And what's true for Jesus is also true for us. We are spiritual beings, you and I, and we need spiritual things to satisfy and ultimately save us. We are immaterial beings that will never be saved or satisfied through material things. And we all think differently. We, don't, we all think that it's just more stuff, more money, more TV, more cars, more sex, more whatever it is, more physical stuff, and then I'll have life and I'll have it forever. Now, wrong. Man does not live on that. Man does not live on that stuff. You live on spiritual things. If you're not seeking to be filled, uh, filled spiritually, if you're not seeking salvation on a spiritual level, if you're not attending to your spiritual self, you're as good as dead. That's what I think Jesus was saying in that moment. Like, ah, physically, I'm tired and I'm so hungry. Like, a Chipotle burrito would be awesome right now. But I'm alive spiritually. And so physically, it doesn't really matter what I have or what I don't have. Because I'm alive spiritually. Whoa, what a, what a crazy countercultural view to have, isn't it? But Satan doesn't give up. Oh, okay, so you think that there's an invisible, immaterial, like, spiritual world. Ooh, Jesus. Okay, you think that there's a God out there who can satisfy you, a God who can save you. Prove it. Jump off of this temple, jump off the top of this window right here, Jesus, and prove that there's things out there that I can't see, that there's a God out there who will save you. There's the second accusation. Number two, God will never allow anything bad to happen to you. Satan references a passage of scripture that would suggest God will never allow bad things to happen to his people. And I think Satan's coming here and he's like, Jesus, of all people, you should expect some preferential treatment from the Father. And it's saying do not test the Lord, I think Jesus is saying God's ultimate goal for my life is not my happiness. God's ultimate goal for my life is not my health. God's ultimate goal for my life is a relationship with him, is to behold his glory, is to know him and to be known by him. You see, God is not the heavenly Santa Claus just dispensing gifts to the kids. He's not like your heavenly sugar daddy who just wants you to be happy and fat and lazy. He's not into the American dream. He don't really care about that dream. His dream is for you to have a relationship with him. His dream is for you to experience heaven on the earth and then end up going to heaven after you're on the earth. That's his goal. That's his desire. And your happiness, your health, pain, suffering, Jesus says, whatever it takes, I'll let him do it. Jesus says, if God wants to do something that's going to hurt me, if God's going to bring me pain, then so be it. Because I trust him. I believe in him. I know that he cares about me and that he loves me in about three years, Jesus is not only gonna talk the talk, he's gonna walk the walk. If God wants to do something that will hurt me, I will let him. And he does. Because God will allow bad things to happen to you. God possibly will bring pain and suffering into your life. And Jesus says, that's okay. That doesn't undermine who God's existence. It doesn't undermine his power. It doesn't undermine his plan for my life. In fact, God asks us And Jesus proves that to us to carry a cross before we ever get to wear the crown. And I think Satan says, here's the crown, brother. Just put it on. It looks so good on you. And Jesus says, I gotta go through a hell of a lot more before I get to wear that, right? Now, Satan's been denied, rejected twice. Then he takes one final shot. Temptation number three, sell your soul to me and I'll take care of you. So Satan's trying to get Jesus to worship something here other than God. He's trying to say, listen, man, if you will just worship this, this one little G God, me, you will get all of that in return. Worship this and you'll get all of that. Oh, man, we do the same thing. We don't call working 80 hours a week worshiping work, but that's exactly what it is. We don't call being stingy with our money and only giving a small percentage to the needy worshiping our money, but that's what we're doing. We don't call pampering ourselves and buying whatever we want, whenever we want, worshiping ourselves. But that's exactly what it is. And we do it. I'm not not mad at you because I'm not mad at myself. I I guess I am a little bit at myself, not not you. But we do it because we, we believe the little lie that Satan is saying. Worship this and you get this. Worship your work, and you get more money, more accolade, a better parking spot, corner office. Worship your kids, and, and you get like a cool bumper sticker that says they're an honor student somewhere. Yeah, it's gonna take more than that. Okay, and you get, you get like other parents looking at you like you're a super parent, and, and you get the affirmation that you're worthy and good, and worship this little thing, little G, God, and you will get all of this in return. And Jesus says, that, that's actually pretty, pretty good thinking. That, that's a logical argument you got going on there, Satan. But here's the thing it's not about me. I'm not at the center of my world. God is. And so you're, you're offering all these things to me. You're asking all these things of me, but it's not about me. It's about God. I want to make his, his name great, not my own. It's about expanding his kingdom, not my own. It's about people coming to know and love and respect and honor and worship him, not me. Isn't that interesting? That last temptation was what Jesus himself struggled with. He wanted others to worship him. So he said, Jesus, surely you want the same thing. Jesus says, nope, I want others to worship him. Wow. And then I think there was like a mic drop, like a sucker punch, and the fight was over. <laughs> it was like, to be continued, wait for the sequel. But think about this. Put yourself in Jesus' shoes just for a minute here. Most of us would have been toast after the first temptation. What? Toast? (laughs) Right? Food? Stuff? I need it. I want it. I'm desperate for it. Give it to me. Give it to me. If not, the number two definitely would have taken us out, right? You're right, Satan. Bad things shouldn't happen to good people. Bad things definitely shouldn't happen to godly people. So forget you, God. And if somehow we were left standing at the end of number two, I think number three would have done it. So you're saying, I just have to worship this, give my all to this, and then return, I'll get all of that? Sign me up. How in the world did Jesus do this? I mean, how, how does he do what Adam and Eve could not do? How does he do what you and I are unable to do? How does he remain faithful and obedient and committed in this setting where he's being attacked and tempted and, and enticed It's all about the prequel. It's all about the prequel. It's what happened in the prequel. Because, you see, when you know what happened before the story began, it makes all the difference in the rest of the story. And there's a prequel to the temptations of Jesus. It's called the baptism of Jesus. And it makes sense of everything else. Because, you see, Jesus was able to stand tall against all the accusations of his foe because first and foremost, he received the affirmations from his father. And that made all the difference in the world. Matthew 3. Let's read a couple of pages together. Top of page 322. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, i didn't be baptized by you. You come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Like many of us, Jesus had a cousin who was totally awed. Every family has to have a cousin like that, don't they? Maybe it's like your cousin Barbara. She always has too much eggnog at the holiday parties, It like makes things awkward for everybody. Maybe it's your cousin Tim. He never runs out of crazy stories, but he always runs out of money. It's like, Tim, what? who are you, man? Well, for Jesus, he had a cousin like that. His name was John. John was this long-haired religious hippie who lived up in the hills. He wore strange clothes, and he most likely made himself. He ate bugs, slept in the dirt, makes Barbara and Tim sound kind of normal, right? And John spent most of his time telling people to repent, to literally turn around, throw a U-turn, because the road you're going down is going to lead to your destruction. You've got to come back to God. Now think radical here. Think street preacher with bullhorn right on, on the corner of the street. That, that's what John was. But instead of yelling at him or ostracizing him, people responded to him. They loved to hear these words. So they came to him to be baptized by him. Go to the Jordan River to be dunked in the water. Hence his name, John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, because that's what he spent most of his time doing. Well, then one day as he's preaching, as he's teaching, as he's baptizing people, up walks Jesus. As you can imagine, John's a bit caught off guard by this. John has learned that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. What the guys in the Old Testament thousands of years ago were talking about, that's in Jesus. He's the guy who's going to come rebuild the temple, reward the righteous, and restore the Jews to a place of prominence. And here he is responding to John's invitation, to John's preaching. It would be as if Billy Graham came to West Bowles Church to listen to me preach. Not only that, I mean, that'd be crazy enough, right? I'd I'd be totally off my game. But then as I wrap up the sermon, I give an invitation opportunity to respond to the message, Billy Graham comes forward. He's like, Thomas, I want you to pray for me, man. In fact, Thomas, I want you to to baptize me. You know what, no, no, Thomas, you're the greatest preacher I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) Thomas, Thomas, I want you to come to my house. No, Thomas, I want you to have my house. Thomas, I want you to take on the Graham family name and legacy so you become the next biggest thing in the Christian world. Thomas, are you ready for this? Can you imagine if that happened? You're having trouble imagining that happening. I can see. <laughs> I, I, I can see it as clear as day. There it is. What's the problem? But for those don't you know, Billy Graham is, is the single greatest evangelist. He's, he's a man that's probably preached to more people and led more people to faith in Jesus than any other man in human history. And so I think what John is experiencing in that day with Jesus coming up is, is on a much larger scale what I would feel like if someone like Billy Graham came to the church. Now, a lot's been said about Jesus' baptism. There's some disagreement as to why he chose to do it. See, Jesus, well, John, I'm sorry, John is asking people to turn back to God and repent of their sins. Turn back to God, repent of their sins. Those are hard to do when you are God and don't have any sin, right? It's hard to do those two things. But I think what's happening in this moment is Jesus is, is, is literally and symbolically and beautifully immersing himself into our world. He's immersing himself into our lives. He's immersing himself into our spiritual condition. I think in this moment, heaven met earth, heaven kissed earth, heaven touched earth in a way that it never had in human history. See, in this moment, God is not only instructing us to surrender our lives, he's showing us what that surrender would look like. In this moment, God is not only telling us to enter the waters to be cleansed, but he's standing next to you in the water. In this moment, God is not only living amongst us, but he is showing us how to live. In this moment, God is not only asking you to connect yourself to him, he's saying, I'm connecting myself to you. And the magnitude of this moment is further revealed to us by what happens immediately after he comes out of the water. Now, throughout my time in ministry, I have witnessed and been a part of some pretty crazy baptisms. Once there was this huge biker guy back in Albuquerque. And some friends had led him to the Lord. So one day he came to be baptized at the church. And the man was so big, there was no outfit. There were no robes that fit him. So they just strapped a couple like bed sheets around this guy. And as he comes out of the water, well, off came the sheets. And the man stands like, praise Jesus. And we were like, yes, praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. Praise the Lord. You're clothed with Christ, but go throw some real clothes on, man. There was this one kid at Pepperdine a few years ago. He was so terrified of water that as I put him down into the, the, the pool, he grabbed my neck and almost pulled me down. I almost wanted to keep him down there. And then there are the countless ocean baptisms that we were a part of. Man, you had to time things just right when you want to be baptized in the ocean. All right? if you do it too late, the current goes out, you got nothing. You do it too soon, you're baptized five times in a row by the wave. Like, ready? Jesus, Holy Spirit, you're good. You're good. (laughs) We're done here. We're done here. But I've never witnessed anything like what happened at Jesus' baptism. Whoa. The heavens open up, signifying that now through Jesus, God is more accessible than ever before. The Spirit of God comes down, signifying that now through Jesus, God's power is now more available than ever before. The Father affirms the Son verbally, signifying that now through Jesus, God's pleasure is going to be acknowledged like never before. This would have been incredible to witness. I mean, John had the best seat in the house, sitting right there next to him in the water. But to be honest with you, church, I think we actually do get to witness it. Every time someone else is baptized, See, because what happens in that water for Jesus, I firmly believe is exactly the same thing that happens in that water for each and every one of us. Because of Jesus, and as we experience it through baptism, heaven itself opens up, and that barrier that once existed between here and there is no longer there. Because of Jesus, and as experienced through baptism, the Holy Spirit of God, the breath of God, the power of God is placed in you. Because of Jesus, and experience through baptism, the Father affirms you, he speaks of his delight in you, and he says, you got it, you got it, you got what it takes, I know you do. And those, those three things happened: this affirmation, this empowerment, this delight, those three things happened before Jesus did anything of any importance. You would expect God to say all these things like after He passed the test, like after He was the star student, after He won the game in the last second. You would expect these things. They happen before anything happened. This is the beginning of the ministry. And I can tell you how important that is because I can't tell you how many people tell me, I'm not ready to be baptized or, or give my life to the Lord. I'm, I'm just, I'm not ready. I don't know enough. I haven't cleaned my life up enough. I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not good enough. Of course you're not enough of any of those. You never will be. Baptism, confession, placing your, your faith in the Lord, that's the first step you take. And then the life begins after that. Not when you figure it out. Not after your spiritual enough. have the right answers right now. You see, God connects himself to us. He connects himself to us through Jesus. And I think he says, and you can connect yourself to me through Jesus as well. I come down to earth through Jesus, and you can come up to heaven through Jesus. It's all about him. So I'm gonna challenge you this morning. I want you to take a huge step of faith. And if you have not been baptized this morning, then you're not gonna be able to leave this church. Okay, not not that extreme, okay? I do have David and and Nathan manning the doors, but if you haven't been baptized, uh, today's the day. We set the baptistry out, outside up on the front steps just because we thought it was cool. <laughs> like, let's just do it outside. It's ready, we've got changes of clothes for you. John's gonna record it if you've got friends or family that would like to see that or be a part of that. Today is the day to be baptized. Because here's the thing, as soon as you walk out those doors, the accusations of your foe are going to come against you. And you stand no chance against the attack of your enemy if you haven't first embraced and experienced the affirmation of your father. How does Jesus do it? How is he able to stand up? How is he able to fight? Because first he heard the words of his father. I love you. I will empower you. And you've got what it takes. So when Satan came around with all these half-truths, all these lies, Jesus was like, pshh. That's what I wish they actually said in the Bible, right? Like Jesus put the hand up and said, psh, With like a little head nod. But of course he can, because the accusations of the father or the accusations of the foe are no match for the affirmation of the father, right? When you hear God say those things, I don't care what anybody else ever says to you, including the devil himself. Nothing matters like that, like those words. Nothing will change you or strengthen you or empower you like those words, nothing. And then no, no other words will ever stand against you. So this morning is time to be baptized. If you've already been baptized, let this morning be a reminder of what happened in that moment. It'll be a reminder of the empowerment, the love, the delight, the affirmation you received in that moment and go out now and fight well. Fight against the devil. Resist this temptation, the scripture says. So let me pray this over you uh, and then we'll sing a song. Ask the choir and the band to come back up. Uh, if you want to be baptized this morning, we have a few folks from first service who are gonna come back and go outside with us and be baptized. I brought every pair of gym shorts and t-shirt I own. I'm ready, I'm ready. If you want to be baptized, come find me. I'm gonna go right out here in the foyer. I want you to come find me. And in church, if you've got a few minutes after we're done here, join us outside on those front steps before we demolish them and watch some people be affirmed by the Father and to hear words they've probably never heard before but have needed to hear so badly. Let me pray. Father, we ask now that you will, even in this moment, stir hearts, convict hearts, and change hearts, God. We pray that people would be cut to the core and realize they have been being attacked, they've been being beaten down by an enemy, by a foe, it wants to destroy them and rip life away from them. And They've been trying to fight that fight all alone. They've been trying to stand their ground and, and play the part all on their own, and they just can't do it. They need a good prequel, Lord. They need to hear your words first. They need to feel your spirit first. They need to hear your affirmation first. I pray that will happen today for a lot of people, that they will be courageous and take a step of faith, and that they will hear your love of them, your delight in them, and your promise to infuse and empower them. Please make it happen. Watch over those who have already been baptized, Father God. Remind them of what was said and what was done at that moment. Strengthen them to continue to fight the good fight. We love you and we thank you for Jesus and just so much of what he's done, who he is, uh, all that he accomplished on our behalf. We love him so much and can't thank you enough for him. Help us to follow him now into the water of baptism. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.